across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. A very good afternoon. Um, if you're tuning into the show today, it's fantastic to have your company. Um, hopefully, you've been joining us for the rest of our shows throughout the term. It's reading week at the moment on campus. Well, not that anyone really is on campus at the moment, but it's reading week um, here at Warwick. But all the alternative view powers on like normal um again thanks for tuning in and thanks if you aren't just listening to us live but also on mixcloud on spotify and all of our other streaming services that we are available on um please as well make sure to continue following us on social media to keep up with everything that we're doing and we have a lot coming up in today's show it's certainly a very good show indeed i'm going to start off with an interview um that i did for raw news earlier on this week we talked to dr mike tildesey an epidemiologist from the university who sits on SPY-M, one of the subgroups of SAGE, a lot really um, to unpack from that interview. So we're going to be talking to him and we're going to be getting the reaction from that interview from my fantastic guest who I'll be introducing very shortly. Where we'll also talk about some of the other announcements from the last couple of days. Vaccine passports, rapid tests to get into nightclubs, that may be the new normal. We'll be talking about whether this is the right way to be going for our new normal. We'll also be bringing you the latest news straight out of campus. We're going to be talking about um, potential changes coming from Ofqual in the last week for exams for new students coming in due to the disruption in the next couple of years and the new free speech champion announced by Gavin Williamson yesterday. That to come as well as a little bit of previewing into rural spring election coverage because of course it is spring elections next week. It's going to be quite a mad week. A lot um, is going to be happening. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. We're also then going to be talking about potential NHS reforms. We saw these leaked last week. Matt Hancock has not exactly ruled out um, contemplating these reforms and enacting them soon after the pandemic. So we'll be talking about the sort of things that need to be done to the health service. And finally, big news last week. It's taken three and a half years since the Grenfell Tower fire for some movement on cladding. And the government have announced that they're going to start to cover the removal of cladding from high rise buildings. Does this go far enough? Is this too late? Well, that is going to come later on in the show, but it's time to welcome my fantastic guests for the show today. Let's start off with our previous head of news here at Raw, our current station manager. I'm pleased to say I am joined by Lucy Ferraby-Stocks. Very good afternoon to you, Lucy. Hello, thank you for having me. It's fantastic to have you back. Um, It's obviously station manager. You're coming into your last few weeks now. As station manager um it's not exactly been a normal normal year um and to be an sm how, how are you finding it now coming into the last few weeks well i'm still alive <laughs> uh, i think i'm not convinced L- little wins little wins now yes no i'm still breathing it's excellent <laughs> no it's, it's been an interesting year i haven't done it alone obviously i've been my co-station manager sean bolton we are uh, she is my partner in crime, my better half, as I say, and she, uh, she and I, we've worked incredibly hard over the past year to try and keep the station up and running. We've adapted, we've changed plans literally with hours notice, uh, whether it be with broadcasting, whether it be with events and all sorts of things. We've had to learn to adapt pretty quickly, but we've enjoyed it. We've had a lot of fun and we hope we're setting the station in good stead for the following year. Well, everyone at Roar is really thankful for the work that you've done over the last year it's certainly been fantastic um you're a finalist you're writing your dissertation at the moment you're coming towards the end of your time at warwick how's that all been going in lockdown it's been odd uh so i've been doing basically most of the year at home and all of the year at home actually and doing a dissertation has been interesting 
Um, it's been um, challenging. It still is challenging. I'm currently working on it now and I'm doing it on special advisors in UK politics, so arguably very topical. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it is interesting trying to get all the information together in one place in 10,000 words is sort of daunting and you don't realize how much reading you do do before you actually start writing as I'm only at the very beginning of starting to put some words in coherent sentences but, well, uh, yes it's going as well as possibly can be touch wood well I mean the dissertation stress that's something I'll probably find myself in next year so if I do need someone to have a shoulder to cry on, on the dissertation stress I know exactly who to come to Lucy it's great to have you on the show um talking of um special advisors here's someone who is a, quite a simp for um a certain couple of special advisors in the late 90s and the early 2000s of course it is one of the world's biggest Alistair Campbell fans it is Seb Maxted how are you doing Cam it's a pleasure to be on as usual it's a pleasure to have you back. I mean, uh, you, it's been a while. It has now. Um, for viewers who um or who aren't aware, um, Seb if, was supposed to come on one of the shows in term one, but um, for those of you who know me that know I am useless with technology, and my computer crashed, and basically the only reason I have good equipment now is because of that one session. Seb was supposed to come on that day, and we sadly timed out to the point where we missed Seb's views on this show, but because of course. You um, most famously had a very big ding dong with Richard last summer over Dominic Cummings. <laughs> so can we be expecting some of these fireworks today? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think Lucy and I agree on many things, but I'm sure there are points of uh, departure as well. So maybe, but uh, Dickie and I did have some special points of disagreement. So maybe not quite the level of fireworks uh, we experienced last time. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. It depends if we talk about Tony Blair or not. Well, I'm just going to have to bring in a series of alternative views and hope that may maybe we start the fireworks that way. You'll just be arguing with me the entire time. But well, that's easy. <laughs> my, my, my abilities as a host have just been completely undermined by my guests, but we power on. Seb, it's great to have you back. Um, so, as I said, a lot we're going to be doing on the show today. But of course, it wouldn't be the alternative view without a bit of a customary look at the last week. And of course, because there has been quite a lot happening in the last week and again kind of like lucy's dissertation we find that we have think that we have loads of words to start off with loads of time but there's far too much in the end that we have to bring it down into a certain into a certain amount of time lucy agrees with me we've got to sum the news up in the 60 seconds so let's do it in three two one so again, coronavirus cases are continuing to decline across the UK. Actually, on Monday, we got the first time below 10,000 cases since October the 2nd. It was just above 10,000 on Tuesday. Deaths are also declining. The R number is between 0.7 and 0.9 as of last week. So it's positive news starting to come with cases coming down. And also the vaccination programme hit its target of 15 million in the top four vulnerable groups being vaccinated by February 15th. The government want to make sure everyone else is vaccinated by the end of April in terms of the next nine sorry the next five priority groups but that'll be interesting to see how that happens whether that's too conservative an uh, estimate perhaps but still concern over new variants some have emerged within the uk recently including one that was discovered yesterday possible strain from the south african variant and we're seeing the possible introductions of vaccine passports for international travel rapid testing as we mentioned earlier we'll be talking about that very soon but meanwhile in other news donald trump was acquitted by the u.s senate last week 57 to 43 senators voted guilty but that's 10 short of the two-thirds required and uh, meanwhile Harry and Meghan, we're hearing they are expecting a second child. And Joss Stone won the Masked Singer. And that is the news in 60 seconds. If, if you listen to the, my breakfast show, 
which by the way tomorrow morning 8 till 10 a.m make sure you do listen to it you you'll realize i'm quite a mass singer fan and joss stone i didn't get i mean i didn't actually really know who she was but that when her face came off i was convinced we're going to see sheridan smith winning it joss stone you, you had to be in my entire house my entire family's faces just dropped just like yeah we did not expect this but yeah i'm a bit of a fan of the mass singer maybe it's just lockdown turning me insane but here we go um we will be back very shortly we'll be talking well when i say we'll be talking i will be talking um to dr mike tildesley who as i said was the epidemiologist sitting on spy and warwick um, university epidemiologist i'm going to be airing his my interview with him for raw news very soon and we'll be talking about that in a bit but first this music welcome back to another week of psychedemics hello everybody you're listening to the vinnie show you are listening to rockstar i'm your student radio station on 1251 I'm pleased to be joined by a member of Spy M, one of the government's um, boards advising it throughout the coronavirus pandemic. I'm pleased to be joined by um, Warwick University epidemiologist, Dr. Mike Tildesley. Um, firstly, hello, Dr. Tildesley. Very good to have you on today. Good morning. I'm pleased to be here. No, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, I guess it really just cut to the chase. Um, you sit on SPY-M. Um, talk to us a little bit about, firstly, I guess, your role within SPY-M, but the, so I guess sort of the overall position of SPY-M within the government strategy. Okay, well, so um, SPIM, so it's the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group, which is essentially made up a group of a group of modellers from throughout the UK who um, are experts in infectious diseases. And really, it's one arm of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies that really feeds into government decision making. So um, it's um, SPIM has really been in operation. Well, actually, Prior to the pandemic, SPIM has been in existence, but has certainly ramped up in participation quite considerably in the last year. Um, SPIM are the ones that do things such as a calculation of the weekly R number that, of course, we see in the news every Friday. We do a lot of the forecasts, so trying to predict, say, midterm forecasts, what we might see in the future. And we've also been responsible, responsible for a number of things that you'll have seen in the media over the last 12 months, such as, say, looking at the role of circuit breakers, um, circuit breaker lockdowns, for example, looking at school reopenings, you know, something that's really, really important at the moment. Um, the Christmas question, you know, what would be the potential impact of relaxation over Christmas? Um, and of course, really importantly, return of students to universities. So, you know, these are a number of questions. Essentially, what we, what we do is we're responsive. You know, we have a number of things that we have to look at on a weekly basis. And then there are very particular asks that we look at that are dependent upon the state of the epidemic, you know, what might be really important for government. The key thing here, of course, is we're not decision makers. You know, we are 
putting in evidence to the government that's then considered along with evidence from a whole bunch of other experts from different disciplines. And then, of course, at some point, governments make decisions based upon all these evidence. Well, no, indeed, there's certainly the it's the old adage that advisors advise and ministers decide. And we'll come on to that um, very shortly. Obviously, the COVID pandemic started um, January 2020 in China, obviously seems seems a long time ago now. But um, obviously, from your position a year ago, it would be about a month from this time a year ago where we would start to have the restrictions coming into place and we'd start to consider lockdowns within this country. Um, one of the most recent developments from the last week was um, the World Health Organization report that sort of started looking at the origins of the disease. And one of the criticisms that emerged, not just of that re report, but seemingly throughout the last few months as well, is that there was insufficient data being provided by China, by the World Health Organization, and just generally insufficient data into COVID that was hampering decision making and potentially delaying it a year ago. From your position sat on SPYM a year ago, did you feel looking back now that you had insufficient data? Would you agree with that point? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously, as I'm sure you can appreciate, a fairly politically sensitive question. Um, I think the um, it's always difficult because when you have outbreaks emerging, you really, really need as good data as possible. And I think there were suggestions that there was a slight delay in reporting, perhaps in the very early stages in late December, this kind of respiratory-like infection that seemed to be prevalent around Wuhan was not made, maybe reported as, as widely as it needed to be. The issue with that is, of course, you're always a little bit behind the curve then. Because with, you know, particularly with the coronavirus pandemic, where you know, the um, the delay from an individual being infected to them showing symptoms is quite long. You know, on average, it can be about five to six days, but it can be up to a couple of weeks. You're always playing catch up. And when the data are insufficient, it makes it even more difficult. So that was a real problem in the very early stages. Um, and of course, you know, if we then fast forward, say, 12, uh, another month to March 2020, when we started to see restrictions coming in, it really probably affected decision making in terms of when to introduce control. Because, of course, as soon as you know there's a problem, you need to introduce control as rapidly as possible. If you don't, there's the real danger of it taking off in a really concerning way. And then any measure that you put in doesn't have as much effect as if you acted rapidly. Yeah, I mean, I seem from certainly the perspective, I think, of many people from a year ago that it was the paper from Dr. Ferguson on March 16th that had very much been the catalyst, been the turning point for a lot of the restrictions coming in. And certainly I can remember the Friday on Friday, the 13th of March, that um, Sir Patrick Valance was doing the media rounds that morning and um, talking about herd immunity. Do you think I guess a lot of this is very much now looking with hindsight, but do you think now perhaps earlier restrictions could have been a thing if there was more of this data that you're talking about? Well, I think perhaps, you know, we can it's we can look back and say, really, restrictions should probably have come in place at least a week earlier to try and get and get ahead of this. The whole herd immunity debate that was happening around then was very, very much miscommunicated in the press. Herd immunity was never a policy. Herd immunity was stated as a consequence of the disease spreading through the population. And actually, and it's quite sad, really, that actually in the first half of last year, herd immunity was sort of um, badged as a couple of dirty words that we shouldn't possibly utter. But actually, that's what we're trying to achieve now through a vaccination campaign. You know, herd immunity is ultimately what we try to strive for. Um, it was clear, however, that it was not the best way really to 
to try to follow a policy where you had very, very light restrictions and tried to get big waves of infection sweeping through the population because of the, the fact that the mortality rate of the disease was actually really quite high. And then that was a concern that we might get a huge number of cases and then it burned through the population quickly, but the result could have been a very, very high number of hospitalizations and deaths. So it was clear that rapid action was needed. And unfortunately, the delays that happened at the time probably set us back somewhat and probably meant that that first lockdown had to be in place quite a bit longer. We talk about um, delays um, coming from the government. Again, going back to the old adage, obviously, advisors advise and ministers decide. Um, the government have said consistently, pretty much from day one of the pandemic response, that they have been following the science at all times. Um, there have been some decisions we now, particularly um, with the circuit breaker lockdown that SAGE advised for that to take place, the government didn't, and then eventually had to enact a national lockdown a month later. Um, do you think that, from your perspective, sitting on SPYM, that the government have always been following the science? Yeah, I think it's, um, in a way, it's convenient to say they're following the science. But I think, I mean, actually, to be fair, you know, they shouldn't just follow the science, because, you know, if you talk to an epidemiologist about the best policy to minimise the risk of COVID infection, then the best policy is everybody stays in lockdown. You don't mix with anybody else until you get to herd immunity. Um, now, of course, that's not practical. What the government needs to do is they need to weigh up risk with the benefits of slightly reopening society. So I think this following the science mantra is a bit naive, to be perfectly honest. Um, there were, and as you, you've just said, there were elements of this where clearly the government acted too late. You know, I was part of the Warwick team that were doing a lot of work on circuit breakers, and there was a lot of suggestions through October that there was really need for a short, sharp circuit breaker. And sadly, by the time it came in, it was a little bit late. Now, of course, in November, we then had the new variant, the Kent variant that emerged, um, and the government did put a lot of blame on the Kent variant in terms of why that lockdown didn't work, but it's only really part of the story. And the problem was, had they reacted a little bit quicker, the problem wouldn't, gone, wouldn't have gone away. It's not like we would have had an early circuit breaker in October and we'd have, we'd have eradicated the virus. That clearly wasn't going to happen, but earlier responses then might have meant that we'd have been in a better position. And then we wouldn't have had this big issue happening with Christmas, potentially, where uh, there was a relaxation proposal for Christmas that was then sort of snatched away at the last minute and potentially did more long-term damage in terms of adherence from the public because of this kind of inconsistent messaging. I mean, that's certainly been one criticism the government have faced over the inconsistent messaging. But certainly you mentioned there was a multitude of circumstances that informed a lot of the government's decisions. And it seems certainly last September there was almost a clash in a sense, with those who wanted obviously tougher restrictions and those potentially coming from the Treasury who were arguing of the potentially the economic, the educational impact of these lockdowns. Um, a lot of people, a lot of backbench conservative, conservative MPs in particular, who have felt that these restrictions have perhaps been too severe, have been saying a lot that they feel that they want more perhaps cost benefit analysis, much more data presented to them. Do, do, you, do you think that there has been sufficient data to, so there's sufficient data presented to these MPs and those people who perhaps aren't as convinced as to the need for tougher restrictions? Well, actually, I think that's a really good point. And it's something that we've been working on, actually, is trying to determine what an optimal policy might be if you don't just think about health, but you also think about economic harm, say, um, sort of non-COVID health. So, for example, you know, if you have severe lockdowns and it affects, say, cancer diagnoses and all these things. 
So we've been trying to sort of put this forward as a proposal to say, well, actually, if we consider all of these different costs, as it were, what would an optimal policy be? Now, of course, this is, you know, you don't need an epidemiologist to tell you this, but of course, what you choose as an optimal policy is very dependent upon what your objective is. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you only care about COVID health, then you have a very, very severe lockdown that you don't re relax until you've got close to herd immunity. If you want to take a bit more of an economic perspective and consider, consider the negative impacts of lockdown, then actually you don't, you don't lock down quite so severely and you relax a little bit more rapidly. But actually, it's really, really important particularly if they want us as advisors to advise regarding what the optimal policy is, that government actually define what their objective is and how they weigh up all of these different priorities when it comes to determining the level of control they want to put in. Certainly from the discussion we've been having, it seems very much you've been pressing the point that you see this as becoming an endemic virus, per se, through the vaccination that will get herd immunity through vaccination that will allow the virus to become endemic. And so in your opinion, do you see elimination then? Because we know that a zero COVID solution has been advocated by some within the opposition and has been going around some of the scientific community. Do you see that then as not an option at the moment that we're going for the endemic virus option? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't put this as options. I would put this as what is realistic. And I think it's, you know, it's pretty clear that get, you know, thinking about a stage where we can eliminate the virus in this country is it's just not feasible. Um, you know, people have pointed to, say, New Zealand and Australia as examples. And again, we can't compare ourselves to New Zealand. We have a much higher population density. We're much more internationally connected than New Zealand. New Zealand have done a great job at eliminating the virus and then having lockdowns to control it. But with a low population density and with you know much fewer international connections than we have, they were always going to be able to do that more rapidly and more easily than we have. So in the longer term, we do need to think about management. Given that it's extremely unlikely we're going to be able to eliminate the virus, we need to think about getting it down to levels that we can control and then potentially thinking about repeated vaccination campaigns in future years so that we can protect the vulnerable and avoid a resurgence of hospitalizations and deaths over the winter months. No, definitely. And one recent policy that seems to have been pushed by the government is the new hotel quarantine system where travellers coming from red list countries are required to um, quarantine in hotels at their own cost of, I believe, just under £2,000 for 10 days or face a £10,000 fine and a 10-year jail sentence. Um, of course, borders has been um, something that Australia and New Zealand in particular have piloted and used well throughout their response. It's something that the UK has come into quite late, but it seems certainly a year ago when the United States closed its borders to visitors from China that they were heavily criticised by the World Health Organisation for doing so. What, where do you see the change in the approach to borders coming from? And can I ask as someone who sits on um, SPYM, do you, when did you first, or when was the recommendation first made for the government to close the borders? Yeah, so, I mean, I, um, in terms of the latter question, it's very difficult for me to answer that. So um, probably these discussions happened before I was a member of SPYM in the first couple of months of last year. So um, that's not one that I can answer. In terms of the general border question, um, I mean, it's pretty clear that there is the risk of, particularly as we get to higher levels of immunity through vaccination, there is the risk of um, new variants being introduced where perhaps the vaccines don't protect at quite as high a level. So that's why 
there's a need for this sort of policy. You could argue, you know, if we go back to early February or even before that last year, there might have been need for stricter border controls in the, in the very first months of 2020 in order to um, minimise the risk of introduction. Um, but because, again, because of these lags, it's really, really hard. Um, and of course, unless you close the borders to everywhere, it's extremely difficult to prevent a virus coming in. You know, we could have, say, stopped direct flights from China, but unless we did extremely good tracing of where everyone had been, um, you could have had the virus jumping multiple points from country to country and still got in. So that's the concern. At the moment, in terms of the border control, we really need to balance risk. We need to look at where we think the highest risk is of potential infections coming in, but also need to be reactive. So if we do see that there are other countries that are posing a serious risk, we need to put in quarantine policies rapidly to minimise the risk of maybe new variants spreading where the vaccines don't work quite so well. Can I ask, in terms of how you determine the risk then in these other countries, are there any sort of criteria that needs to be fulfilled for you to move a country on and off the red list? Well, I will say that's not our job. Um, that's certainly not something that we do. Um, so I can't really comment in detail on that. I think really what um, what you would look at, though, is is there evidence of a virus rapidly spreading? Are we detecting, say, new variants that are not in existence in this country that we are concerned about? And of course, we've had this with South Africa. We've had this with Brazil. Um, and if there is evidence that they may pose a serious risk to the UK, then potentially they need to be considered to add added to this red list. But as I said, it's not the role of SPYM to do this. OK, if we can move on now, obviously you were talking earlier about um, sort of the ideas, potential um, reopening of society, obviously talking about um, potentially easing the lockdown and with the vaccination now. Um, Warwick um, University um, researchers, including yourself, submitted a paper to SAGE on January the 14th. Um, one of the figures, um, figure five, was talking about the best we can manage scenario. And with 95% um, uptake of vaccine for both doses and 3 million um, doses a week by February, um, it assumed even with um, our coming down to 0.8, that there would still be a need and a potential resurgence in cases next winter and potential um, a potentially high amount of deaths as well and the need for tougher restrictions next winter. Um, are you more optimistic having seen the, the success of the vaccine rollout over the last month, um, are you more optimistic that that may not be a possibility now next winter? Now, I will say with that paper, now um, you're doing better than me because I'm not quite sure what figure five is in that paper, but um, 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 I would say with anything like that, you know, they're based on uh, predictions that we have at the time in terms of vaccine rollout, vaccine uptake, and also the protection levels of the virus, not not just in terms of symptoms, but also in terms of the ability to block infection and transmission. So I think some of the suggestions in that paper were a little bit conservative and in terms of the rollout were a little bit conservative. So if we can maintain the progress we've made so far and if the current suggestions of the ability of the vaccines to block transmission remain true, which of course is somewhat dependent upon whether any of these more worrying new variants take hold, then we might be on the slightly more optimistic side of those forecasts. I think regardless of that, though, the key message is that um, any relaxation of lockdown needs to be done gradually so that we can monitor what that does to the R number and the potential for resurgence and if necessary, react strongly so that we can prevent any resurgence and risk 
to the NHS have occurring over the over the months when that relaxation is taking place? I mean, there's a lot of concern over the South Africa variant at the moment. You mentioned these new variants, South Africa variant being really central to that. And we've seen um, the new surge testing taking place in various areas across the country. Um, how how widespread from the data that you have so far do you think this is across the UK? And I guess it's a further point. We've seen a lot um, of the vaccinations say that they're, that they're able to present um, prevent serious illness and death from the South Africa variant but not um, mild illness or um, stopping transmission. We're not 100% sure on that point. So is there a chance, do you reckon, that if it prevents serious illness and death, is that enough to justify that that particular variant of the virus is it's in itself not a threat? Well, OK, so there's a few points there. So in terms of how widespread it is, I say there's still a level of uncertainty about that. And um we are, you know, we have had evidence in the last week or two of some level of community transmission in certain areas. This is why this rapid surge testing has been taking place to trying to put in local interventions to try to manage the virus. Um, we will get more information about that in the next in the next few weeks as to how widespread it really is. The hope is that this surge testing can get ahead of it and really prevent it from becoming one of the dominant strains. In terms of the protection levels, um, again. This is based on relatively early data um, in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccines against blocking transmission with the South Africa variant. There are suggestions that it's not as good at blocking transmission, but it, it's not that um, not that less not that sort of less useful in terms of blocking um, severe symptoms. That presents a little bit of a problem because um, you know, we know that these viruses and uh, these vaccines are not 100% protective. So if they're not good at blocking transmission, then as we start to open up society, those that are not protected um, could still get infected and could still pass it on. And of course, those that are not vaccinated could still pass it on. So there was there is a um, serious risk to the vulnerable who are not protected by the vaccine if these vaccines don't block transmission. So that's why we need to be a little bit cautious. And in the longer term, what we may need is booster vaccines to be given out to, that protect against these new variants to hopefully protect the vulnerable as we move into the winter. Obviously, the government's um, vaccine programme is moving ahead at the moment. Um, but there's certainly a lot of debate as to when restrictions may be able to be safe these and when we can relax even some of the most basic restrictions, including um, things such as social distancing. Um, there's quite a lot of divisions on this. I know there are some, we're talking about some of the um, backbench Conservative MPs within the COVID recovery group who have suggested that once the over 50s are vaccinated, um, then we should be able to remove some of these more basic restrictions like the social distancing. Others have um, pointed out, many within the government have suggested we're going to be waiting more towards summer, towards the end of autumn. Where, where do you think this is most likely to be? Well, I would say that it, I would be extremely reluctant to set an exact date on this because I think it's, it's very, very dependent upon how we go with the vaccination campaign and how successful these vaccines are. Um, one of the things to bear in mind, though, um, is that because I was just saying these vaccines are not 100% effective, let's say, for example, you know, we, we vaccinate all the vulnerable and then we remove all restrictions. You know, given that we now have the Kent variant that's spreading rapidly, we would go from a situation where the R number is round about one, a little bit below, to potentially being as high as four. Um, remember, like a year ago, before any restrictions, the R number was about three. So if we went back to no restrictions with a more transmissible variant, the R number could go as high as four. So 
even with a high proportion of the vulnerable vaccinated and protected, there would still be some in that group who would not be protected, which if we stayed in lockdown would be fine. You know, we would see the hospitalizations and the deaths going down dramatically. But if you all of a sudden relax all controls and have a four times more transmissible virus spreading around the population because of people mixing more, not because the virus is more transmissible, I hasten to add, that would then expose these people to severely increased risk. So that's why there is a real stress from a lot of the scientists to say you relax controls at the rate that a vaccine can keep up with so that you aren't inadvertently exposing these non-protected people to much more transmission and much more risk of hospitalization. Just one last question, obviously, um, sort of focusing on universities, obviously, I think for many students, that's really a key point for them at the moment is the possibility of when we'll be able to return to, I guess, firstly, the face-to-face teaching and the blended learning that we had in term one, but I guess also thinking ahead to when we may be able to get back to the in-person lectures and the in-person seminars that we're all used to. Um, I guess, when do you, I, firstly, when do you see us being able to return to face-to-face teaching? Do you think it's likely before the end of the year when that's a possibility? And again, I guess, following on, do you think that by the start of the next academic year, we may be able to be in something slightly more normal? Well, I really hope so, because to be honest, you know, I do feel for particularly our, you know, our second years and our first years this year, who, let's be honest, have not had a normal um, undergraduate experience for their entire sort of student life so far. And I think it would be very sad if we ended up having another year where students were under severe levels of restrictions, because you could potentially then have a cohort of students who've gone through their entire student life with not having that normal experience. And I I hope that, you know, if we follow this trajectory, then maybe by next term, we can start to have some level of students returning to campus in some kind of blended way for teaching. And then my hope is by the next academic year, we can get more back to normal, because I think it's really, really important that we do that for our own students' well-being. But we're going to have to monitor the situation, see how it goes with the vaccines in the next few months. I'm pretty hopeful, actually. We've had really good progress with the vaccines in the first two months of this year. And if that continues and we get high levels of uptake in younger people, and I think that's really, really important here. We need to get the message out for younger people that even if you are not personally at risk of developing severe symptoms, it's really important you take the vaccine for everybody else. If we can achieve that, then hopefully when we get into the next academic year, we can start to get more back to normality for our students. Dr. Mike Tildesey, it has been a pleasure to have your time with us today. Thank you very much. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your role. A big thank you, um, to, firstly, to Dr. Tildesley for the interview. It was really interesting and I had a really great time interviewing him. I really felt we got quite, I learned quite a lot. 
from that interview. And also a big thanks as well, as always, to our head of news, Enoch Mukungu, for putting the video together and doing most of the technical stuff that I can't do. A big thank you for sorting that all out, Enoch. Um, let's obviously, let's talk about this interview because obviously there's quite a lot, I think it's quite interesting coming from it, talking about, I guess, firstly, the response at the start of the pandemic, sort of what the scientific community knew, perhaps the benefit of hindsight, what it might do now, but also looking ahead to coming out of lockdown as well, and perhaps the increased optimism within the scientific community. Of course, there are some reports that state this optimism isn't shared by the community. We know there's an imperial computer model that came out in recent days that suggested if we relax restrictions early, we could have a similar wave of deaths to what we've recently had, potentially as early as September, October. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. Lucy, let's start off with you. Um, What was your reaction to the interview? I say it's the thing for, from his perspective, things are a lot more optimistic than like what you've just said in the media. So because there are quite a few places that are saying, oh, we should uh, remain, you know, t- coming out of lockdown earlier will result in uh, a significant increase in the death toll, number of cases, et cetera, et cetera. But I, it's, listening to something like that does give me a bit of hope. Um, especially for someone that's been learning remotely since the beginning of the year it gives me a bit of hope that it might be safer to return to the classroom soon at some point um, for people like me so I it is quite reassuring and I I do think I would be quite surprised if we are in sort of generally in-person teaching by September October Um, I, I would like to be in a seminar room again I never thought I would say that you know, willingly go and find myself in a seminar room. But I would actually quite enjoy the experience, even if it's not a lecture. Being in a seminar in person, I think, would be quite um, exciting. But it does give me a bit of hope. But I, I do think regardless, it we do need to just... I think the next few weeks are going to be incredibly key with what the government, some form of roadmap or plan, if that does come to fruition on Monday. Um, I do think the next few weeks are going to be critical. Well, certainly. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to take a 9am lecture or seminar for granted again after the last year. But um, it's that hope that I think you really summed up there, Lucy. Seb, do you share that hope from that interview? No, I absolutely do, Cam. I think um, his comments are really uplifting, actually. Um, And it's interesting because the discourse emanating from uh, government scientists um, is changing. Um, Even Dr. Neil Ferguson, who, of course, was the famous... uh, scientist originally uh, uh, critical to the projections of the imperial model way back at the start of the first lockdown and the initial outbreak, who was famously, of course, doomed uh, doctor death uh, by a sun headline, I think. I might get that wrong, though, sir, so just in case I'm sued. Um, but, but even he was uh, increasingly positive this week. He said this would be Britain's final lockdown were his words, and I can quote that veritably. Um, and so I think there is a shifting uh, sort of narrative that is optimistic, Cam. And it's certainly one that I welcome uh, as a a layman. Um, Yeah, no, I think we could be back in uh, seminar tutorials by September. I I don't think, I think term three could be verging uh, on the uh, too optimistic side. Um, But it's all down to the government. And I think the government itself is on the more optimistic side because politically it has to be. Although we've had reassurances uh, from the prime minister that it will be driven by data uh, and science, of course, rather than uh, headlines as it perhaps has been perceived to be so far. So yeah, cautious optimism is uh, something to be welcomed, I think. 
No, absolutely. And of course, if you um, listen to the show a couple of weeks ago, we had our interview with Ollie Barron and Charlotte Lloyd, and they were talking about how optimistic they were for sports and societies to start doing stuff in person again later in term three. So that is, of course, an option. And of course, wouldn't it be nice when you finish your final exams, you've put your essays in, you might be able to go to the pub and have a drink. That, that is a nice feeling. But um, speaking of going to the pub, and having a drink there's been a lot of discussions in recent days really about perhaps how we can safely do this and there's been talk for the last few weeks about the idea of vaccine passports and they've been talked about quite heavily with regards to international travel and we know that there are talks that some countries may only accept travelers if they've had proof that they've had um their second coronavirus jab but domestically there's a lot more debate about the way to go and um, vaccine passports have been um, discussed as a potential option. So the idea you need to prove you've had a vaccine to be able to go into hospitality, potentially into something like nightclubs or casinos, which will be allowed to be reopened with this. Um, and yesterday, though, um, Boris Johnson when he was talking and um, giving his press conference in Downing Street. He suggested the lateral flow tests um, could be used to get a result at the entry to these places in 15 minutes and allow people to come in. Um, Seb, let's start off with you um, this time. I guess, do you think vaccine passports are the right way out of this? And how long do you think we would need to have them in place? Well, Cam, that's an interesting question. I think um, I I can't project timelines. But I think there's an interesting distinction to draw in this debate. Um, I think international vaccine passports are absolutely possible. Checks on the borders at airports um, and at ports make that uh, a viable possibility. Domestic uh, passports, however, to get into hospitality uh, is a breeding breeding ground for accusations of illiberal democracy and, might I add, any number of forms of fraud, uh, right? I think it's a recipe to go wrong. We saw David David Davis come out today and said he would sort of fight it tooth and nail. Uh, And I think you would sort of see massive political infighting from the Conservative backbenches. Uh, if they were to go forward in that. So I I don't think that's politically viable and I don't think pragmatically it's viable. However, as I said, international vaccine passports, absolutely. Um, And I I think that's going to be seen to be pushed at the G8. So I'm interested to see where that goes, uh, Cam, I really am. The COVID recovery group, you mentioned there, the group of backbench Conservative MPs, they have come out very strongly and said that you're getting to the point where once you get past the first nine priority groups, that you've got a situation where you vaccinated the most vulnerable people within the country that is accounted for about 98 to 99% of the deaths. And even if the vaccines don't necessarily stop some illness, it means that people can at worst get mild illness. And so what was the point of locking down? And is there a too high a cost of this? That's what they would be saying. Um, Lucy, I guess, would you? what do you think about this? Because obviously I think people accept that we will this we want this to be the last lockdown and they accept that there will be a need for some restrictions at some point but is i guess following on from what seb said is the vaccine passport perhaps a too illiberal way forward is the lateral flow test something more importantly that is feasible and realistic at many of these venues i do think that i can see again i do agree with seven that internationally i can see these vaccine passports becoming a more widely accepted proposal uh, especially with people travelling from the UK, as we have been one of the places where new variants have developed and other countries have been incredibly wary of this. Uh, likewise, I think domestically, I the one thing is when sort of COVID initially ha- occurred in China, we didn't think that 
we would be experiencing what we have done now. We didn't think lockdowns would happen. We didn't think the whole country would ground to a halt for a matter of months. So arguably we shouldn't really rule anything out as we should know what the last year has told us anything can happen. Um, I do think that there is a fairly strong case for them, for people, you know, being able to enter certain venues. Um, But then arguably, I do understand why some would say, well, the most vulnerable in society have been protected, so the rest of us should be allowed to get on and do as we please. But the one thing is, is that we can't anticipate with these new variants is how they are going to, or any future variants, how they are going to mutate and how they are going to affect people say of our age or those that may not have been vaccinated albeit those that may have been vaccinated they might not be covered by the new variants etc obviously the possibilities are endless but I do think we need to recognize that even with how these new variants develop they are affecting increasingly younger people in society and that is seen by the most recent way there has been an increased number of people of the more non-typical groups that have been hospitalised and having to be treated as a result of COVID. So I do think that that needs to be bared in mind as going forward. So I'm not completely ruling out. I, I do agree with Seven that they are probably implausible within the UK. However, with the last year, it's shown that anything can happen. Anything can happen indeed. And um, Prime Minister will be making a statement um, on February 22nd next Monday discussing potential routes out of lockdown. So we'll, we will be waiting to see what happens there um that's it on coronavirus we'll be back to start off our second hour we'll be talking about um the potential new free speech champions and all the latest news on campus across campus online and on 12 51 a.m this 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 is your student radio station anyway as we said start the second hour now of the alternative view thank you so much if you have just tuned into us i um, you missed quite a lot in our first hour including uh, my interview with Dr. Mike Tildesley. Um, if you did um, miss that, you are able to um, watch it on Raw News's Facebook page, on its YouTube and on Twitter as well. And also we will be putting, again, this whole show up on Mixcloud and on Spotify like we normally do so you can catch up with anything you have missed at a time that suits you. But um, let's move on now to the start of our second hour. We've got a lot to talk about, including possible reforms to the NHS that have been discussed quite at length in recent weeks, plus um, the news on cladding, um, which we the government have announced new plans to help cladding come down from high-rise buildings in really the response or the three-and-a-half-year response since Grenfell Tower. We'll be talking about that in a bit. But firstly, it's time for our little section we like to call Straight Outer Campus. And this is again where we bring you the latest news and views from campus over the last week. And there has been quite a lot for us to talk about but let's start off I know we're talking about this week but let's start off with next week because it's spring elections next week on campus it's one of the biggest events of the normally one of the biggest events of the year on campus um last year I was I was one of those freshers who for some reason or another ran don't ask me why um yeah it was a fun fun week um i mean obviously this year's candidates don't get you know the five pounds off at bread oven which was always very nice or just the general vibe of campaigning week which you know even as even though i lost hilariously i did love just su election week it is a very fun week you see the signs go up around campus you have everyone coming to your halls all the time you find many inventive ways to tell people to go away from your kitchen it's all very good fun but raw forms a big part of SU election week. Um, Lucy, obviously you were head of news last year, your station manager now, so you know exactly what it's like to do spring elections for all. Um, how excited are you to be doing it 
in this year where it's very much well it's it's entirely virtual this year it's completely different to what we're used to absolutely riveted can't you tell by the tone of my voice um no it's it's interesting it's I'm looking forward to it. Planning it has been uh, rather entertaining. Um, we've been thinking on our feet, but it has been another opportunity for us to adapt to the current climate. And we've got a lot of exciting things coming up over the next week. So as you say, you have a lot of exciting things coming up over the next week. What are these exciting things? So normally we would, well, first of all, we've got our hosting. So normally these will be done live on air, but this year we are going to be broadcasting them live from our Facebook page. And these are with all the top full-time officer roles. So from president to education, sports, societies, postgraduate and um, welfare. So we are going to be interviewing all the candidates for these roles and seeing what their plans are, how they plan on executing them, what their vision for the SU is going forward. So a schedule for those will be being released soon. Uh, these are obviously a follow up uh, in from the official Warwick SU hostings, which are happening this week. And also we have presidential interviews coming out. So each of the candidates will be being scrutinised. Uh, I'm interviewing one myself and we will be quizzing them all individually about their policies and their way forward and also obviously the big thing of the week is the big decision this will be broadcast live on friday next week live from our facebook page uh, at nine o'clock in the evening we will be doing a live results show of the results of the su election so for, this is all from the faculty reps the part-time officers to the full-time officers you get the opportunity to hear the candidates make a small speech and then they will once again be quizzed uh, by some of us lovely raw folk as to how they see the way forward and how they found the week campaigning so it's been an interesting one normally i'm running around campus with a camera interviewing people, chasing people with a microphone, quizzing them in the studio. So doing it all remotely has been quite interesting, but I've got a very good team behind me. It's not all down to me. I've got my excellent successor of Head of New Zealand who's been helping out. We've got a big team of people working on it as well behind the scenes. So hopefully our hard work will pay off next week. But to find out more, always follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and specific Facebook as that is where we'll be streaming all of the events. As you can see, a lot taking place next week. Of course, I was thinking about, obviously, as I mentioned to my run last year, I can remember going to my hustings that you hosted last year. And I can remember, of course, the curse. Well, a pop is never a curse. But having, you know, having had such a good night at pop the night before and then having to also do a radio interview whilst I was trying to sound legible. I mean, I'm barely legible at the best of times. But after a heavy night at pop, it was a very fun interview indeed. And of course, it will be interesting to see not only with everything being virtual this year, but with no Casbah, with no Pop, with no Smack, with no Neon joining us in the campaign this year. It's very sad, but also it's just going to be a very interesting. So perhaps I'm going too much into this. Perhaps I'm sort of thinking about this election too abstractly. But yes, spring elections take place next week on campus. It's always a fun week and it will be very interesting to see what happens over the next week. Um Let's move on to another issue now. Um, Ofqual have announced in the last week for new incoming students, potentially from next academic year, um, because they've had such significant gaps in their teaching, because obviously schools being closed due to lockdowns, and then just the sort of the approach that people have had with the more blended learning when people have had to self-isolate, there's a chance that students may be asked to take exams when they come to university to see kind of where the gaps are in their knowledge, whether they need 
extra support. Now, of course, this is an interesting measure because, of course, many students will have grades, but these grades will have been drawn up from teacher predictions, often not from um, forms of examination. I mean, Seb, let's come to you first. Do you think this is a feasible and realistic plan? I mean, no, pragmatically, you've got to remember, you've got students coming from IB, you've got students coming from A-level, and then you've got different exam boards within each of those two types of assessment. Uh, the notion that the university would be able to pinpoint on the basis of a universal exam administered to all students, uh, subject dependent, of course, where those gaps in their learning uh, did lie and how they would be able to uh, remedy that, it, it, it's a little bit unrealistic, I think. Um, to be honest, I think... Um, we should be wary of overstating um, the problem of lockdown causing students in terms of learning. I think students should just be thrown back straight into university life. Um, I know it's a bit sink or swim, but the trouble is I don't think you can actually remedy it, as I've explained. Um, and I think what's interesting to remember, I speak exclusively for Pace here, but I assume this is generally true for all subjects across the board, really, is um, when you get to university, of course, and I remember this very clearly in an introductory lecture uh, for politics uh, last year when I was in first year, they said that a degree is nothing like the exams you've done at A-level. And if that's the case, th then why are we going to dilly-dally over whether we've actually done exams properly? Universities just need to get on with the job of educating the students that they choose to admit. They can't turn them, them away uh, by the time they've accepted them, depending on how they performed on their exams. So it's not about that. It's just about getting good learning started. And that's what we need. These students have had education put off again and again and he, i think i think they just need to they want to get in get on with it i'm sure the universities want to get on with it let them get on with it you know um lucy do you agree with seb do you think that we should almost accept that what's happened over the last couple of years has happened but let students almost find their way into their course and almost find any gaps that they do have as they go on throughout their course uh i suppose to put it simply simply yes I do but I do think you can offer support in other ways rather than just saying sink or swim so I don't think an exam would work because feasibly you've got especially a lot of students going into degrees that they might not have studied or done anything remotely related to A-level um, as obviously university again as Seth has said is completely different to how you study any form of further education a lot of it is independent however it doesn't mean that you just have to sort of throw students in at the deep end because obviously University, you could argue, is a deep end for a lot of people, whether you've had, like for me, I found, I joined, I remember sort of week two going and talking to my mum on the phone saying, I can't do this, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, when you're reading the reading for the fifth time, it might be something you've never read in detail before, if it's like an original text, if you're going for Hobbes' Leviathan on day one, you know, you do feel like you are sinking at the beginning because you can't understand no, it. Please you don't. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you've got to be on top uh, sort of the whole time. Uh, so I do think there are other things that can be put in to mitigate and support students. So you've got, arguably, I am, again, speaking as a PACE student at Warwick, I know my seminar tutors are more than happy to see me if I say I'm stuck on an issue in particular, whether it be essay related or not. Uh, departments can put things in place that say maybe sort of uh, reading skills, writing skills, how to do stuff best in a lecture you know there are things that can be implemented by the university and specific departments that will be far more beneficial than an exam because uh, I think that that might just put more stress and more pressure on students that have already had so many exams taken away from them and the opportunity to show what they can do because uh, albeit as well you've got to think exams aren't they do 
go through a lot of people's careers, but they aren't the be all and end all of how people learn. And they aren't the best way of always proving how people how well people know a subject. I found that specifically like this year, I've gone through a dissertation and I'm only doing one exam. All the rest of my third year is assessed by essays. So I'm going through that way. I don't know whether that's clever or insane with 25,000 words due on the same day. But for me, I know, yes, Seb, that face I can see you pulling at me is that's how I feel right now. <laughs> um, 25,000 words due on the same day. But the thing is, I chose that because I know that's how I can best reflect my academic ability. What whatever that might be rather than through exams so I think exams would probably just increase the stress for students who have already had enough pressure as it is and there are far more effective ways of enabling students to get involved in university life. 25,000 words by one day that sounds like great fun I don't know why you've done why you've done that to yourself Lucy. Self-inflicted clearly <laughs> but you know the only, I'm being optimistic I'm currently surrounded by books so you know hopefully it pays off. Hopefully it does pay off indeed. Um, let's move on to another issue now. Um, so Gavin Williamson, we've seen a lot of discussions on free speech in the media in recent years. And universities in free speech and no platforming have become quite a significant issue in the past few years. We can think back perhaps to a um, couple of summers ago when Amber Rudd was um, deplatformed by Oxford University. And that caused quite an interesting discussion there. Um, Gavin Williamson has announced um, this week that he's going to announce a new free speech champion that goes in with a contract that um, universities sign um, with Universities UK in the Office for Students. Basically, what this now says is there's a particular clause where students have to, or where the universities now have to be able to guarantee lawful free speech and um, academic freedom on campus. And the Office for Students have the ability to impose fines on institutions and universities that don't do this. Now, we don't know the extent of what these fines are yet. We don't know the exact conditions for what these breaches are, but that's what's been in discussion. Um, a lot of people um, within the Department for Education, the Office for Students have said this is a necessary measure to protect lawful free speech and academic freedom against potential attacks on freedom of expression. But of course, there have been some criticisms to this, which we will go through um, very shortly. But I just want to get my guest's initial reactions firstly. So Seb, um, what's your initial reaction to this move from the government? Yeah, so look, I don't think it's the best way to tackle the issue. I think it is an issue. I think free speech on campus absolutely is an issue. And if you follow uh, professors like Matt uh, Godwin, or it might be Goodwin on uh, Twitter, who's a professor in political science at, um, at UEA, I think. Um, it's not UEA, um, but it's, I mean, there are clear issues, right, where, where there are opinions. And I think there are actually uh, certain opinions in seminars that, students don't think that they can discuss. Um, I don't think it's particularly an issue at Warwick. I don't think we've really witnessed any, uh, no platforming that I know of. It was certainly an issue in the case that you cited, Cam, uh, with Amber Rudd. Um, I don't think it's a particularly an issue here. Uh, but I think the government needs to be doing something about it. I don't think uh, Gavin Williamson appointing various SARS to act as quote unquote champions is perhaps the best way to go about it. I think it's maybe, treating the symptoms and not the cause. Although, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what the cause is uh, at all with sort of a liberal uh, sentiment on, on campus. But um, yeah, I think they've, they've, they've got the issue, right? There is an issue there. I just don't think they're treating it in the effective manner, but we'll see, we'll see. It's one of Big Gaz's ideas. Who knows where it could take us? I don't think Gavin Williamson has ever been referred to as Big Gazza before. Well, I, th I think he will take it. Someone had to, and you had to do it first. Exactly. Um, he's a he's a statesman. 
as a statesman of this country, Big Gaz, if you are listening, Big Gaz, um, yeah, we'll coin it now. I don't know if it can be used. Is it unparliamentary language to call him Big Gaz in the in the House chamber? I don't think so. I'll, I'll, I'll let I'll let I'll let Sir Lindsay um, rule on that. Um, Lucy, I guess following on from what um, Seb said, there was a big debate in Cambridge University at the end of last year with a particular um, clause in academic freedom of speech where it said that instead of giving um, respectable views, there needed to be given tolerance to all views. Now, this was voted down um, by academics at Cambridge University who said that this risks stifling academic freedom. So do you think that there is a need for Asar, as Seb mentioned there, this free speech champion to be appointed to be regulating speech at universities? I, the, the, the one thing is, is obviously it's, it's a very fine line to balance. You know, you've got to draw a line somewhere and it is incredibly hard as to where you define that line. I, I do think that sort of enabling further free speech at universities, it allows for greater, you could argue, it allows for greater academic discussion, it allows for enrichment of academic discussion, because I do think to order, in order to understand the subject and form your own opinion on it, you need to know uh, the opposition to your own opinion, so that you can formulate your best response and rebuttal to any queries that other people might bring up in opposition to you. Um, but I, I do think that there needs to be an awareness that certain views and opinions that that just aren't acceptable, um, that do cause detriment to others and can cause harm to others, whether it be physically or mentally. So I think that university, the, the one thing is, is at work that obviously it has come up as an issue, but obviously not as prominent as certain other issues on campus, because free speech has led to um, change, because arguably the uh, Take, for example, the biggest protest, one of the biggest protests seen at White was the group chat scandal. Now, without freedom of speech being enabled there, students wouldn't have been able to protest, march most of the way around campus and sit outside university hats uh, for the considerable amount of time they did, leading to certain changes that the university have implemented and are looking into. So I, I do think it's a very hard line to draw. And I do think... Um, free speech should be enabled but I do think we still need to be aware where this will come at detriment to others because some people ultimately like with any form of policy no matter what it will be some people will try and abuse it. Let's bring in um, some criticisms of this new approach from the government. Let's start off with Dr Joe Grady the General Secretary of the University and College Union um, so she has said that she is concerned that the government is fighting what she deems a phantom of th- fighting a phantom threat to free speech instead of the impact of COVID-19 and particularly cited the fact that the government should be focusing upon job insecurity, which she regards as an endemic, and more managing aerialist approaches, which she felt was restricting academics' freedom. Um, her opinion was echoed by Hilary Gaia Barbio, who is the Vice President for Higher Education at the NUS. She said that there is no evidence that freedom of expression is restricted on campuses. Um, Lucy, what do you make of these two criticisms? Do you Do you see them as, I guess sort of plausible responses to the government? Do you think that there is, as it is perhaps Dr. Joe Grady cites, far greater issues that the government needs to be dealing with at the moment? I, I think to sum it up, probably yes. I do think at the minute, freedom of speech, I do think is a key issue on campuses because it was an issue before the COVID pandemic and it will continue to do so. However, I do think the more immediate threat is coming as a result of 
whether it be job insecurity, whether it be students joining university itself, students actually getting back to teaching in person, there's no point having this freedom of speech debate if you don't actually have the students at your university to have the debate. So I think that there are more prominent issues you could argue within the short term, so maybe the next year, that need to be dealt with. I do think it does need to remain on the agenda, though, because it, it can't just disappear um but i do think the immediate effects of the pandemic need to be dealt with first um i and albeit i I, but i do think it is university campus specific there are certain places where free speech is obviously more of an issue than others um so i do think you need to look on a campus by campus basis but i think as a whole uh, the immediate impact of the pandemic on students education on not just the students obviously the staff that worked incredibly hard to try and teach us throughout over the past year needs to be focused on in the more immediate future as well. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Warwick within this because um, Spiked magazine have given Warwick a red um, rating for um, free speech on campus, which is the lowest with regards to um, the argument that freedom of expression can be, but is particularly harmed at Warwick. And, and that is one of those institutions. Um, Seb, there's a much wider debate at the moment with regards to cancel culture within society. Do you think that this move from the government is very much in reflection of that? That this is uh, perhaps playing out in the sort of wider culture war narrative that a lot of people have been talking about and certainly taken an increased part in political discourse in this country within the last few years? Yeah, I think um, council culture and free speech on campus are very much uh, inextricably interlinked. And um, can I just say council culture needs to end? um I, the whole the whole problem facing faces cancel culture is really it assumes that people are perfect um ignoring that every human really is, is simple in their own way and makes mistakes and it seems to you can never be redeemed right from your fall from grace even though uh people whether they're in or out of the public spotlight um get things wrong every day um so yeah i think this does play into the government's wider move um against the the backdrop of culture wars i do worry though that by giving it too much attention they only fan the flames of it um, and i think the backbenchers have pointed out this being a possibility that government by putting the spotlight on cancel culture on lack of free speech whether it be in society or on university campuses um or certainly political correctness by extension um only risks mutating the argument such that it actually becomes worse and so I think that's important to consider. But yes, I think this is part of a wider government strategy uh, to crack down on this culture of cancellation uh, and of political correctness, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see really where the plans for government goes, of course, how they enforce this as well. There's still, I think, more stringent and more specific plans the government will be drawing up um, with regards to this. I'm sure this won't be the last we hear of this issue. So that was our look into the latest news and views from campus. As you can see, quite a lot to discuss and um, we'll be back very shortly talking about potential reforms of the NHS they've been leaked recently there's been a lot of discussion about this we're going to be talking about some of these now and seeing what the panel think but firstly this music welcome back to another week of psychedelics hello everybody you're listening to the Vinny show you are listening to Rockstar I'm backstage with Casper we're starting to get there's a team spirit going oh. on behind it you're all rooting for each other oh yeah good job yeah. 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 
Arts. I love the idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just mm. put them like way above. Speech. You must get to the Madison Stats Building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to The Big Decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1251 AM. Your student radio station on twelve fifty one AM. This is your role. Seb will be joining us again um, very soon, but of course the beauty of um not being in a studio and doing your recordings online at the moment does mean that you're very reliant upon the internet to be able to function. And sadly, Seb's internet has chosen this moment to collapse. So Seb will be back very soon and he'll be coming back for our final section. But we are still luckily joined by Lucy. Lucy's internet is holding up. So let's talk about <laughs> Lucy's face at the moment, the fear that the internet will just break at any point. I'm I mean, just if- looking at my, I'm looking at my router rather warily just sort of going it's a nice router stay working please it's flashing lights so i hope that's a good thing if it does and this becomes a one-man show for a bit like would would off would offcom uh would, would offcom mean i have to constrain to sort of julia hartley brewer nick ferrari james o'brien territory or you know have to say strict and impartial and have a debate with myself for 10 minutes i don't I'd, I'd quite like to see you do the latter that'd be quite interesting <laughs> to see if you can manage it I debate the future of the NHS amongst myself. It would just be a unchoreographed rambling, and that that wouldn't be worth listening to. But what is worth listening to is the NHS and the discussion we're about to have on it. So um, we've seen a lot of talk. Obviously, the NHS has been at the centre of the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. But a lot of people have pointed out the fact that there has been significant um, issues with the NHS across the last decade. Austerity, many people have pointed out, had an impact on how effectively the health service has been run. And the pandemic, as we know, has brought up really a lot of the issues and concerns that people have had in society throughout the last decade. And consequently, there's now talk of reform to the NHS. Um, one of the big um, reforms being talked about is very much a reversal in many ways of the reforms introduced by David Cameron and Andrew Lansley when he was health secretary in 2012. Um, one of the, refor- the main nature of those reforms is very much to decentralize the NHS set up the clinical commissioning group to move uh, much of the accountability of the NHS away directly from ministers with increased roles for private sector, for the con- for contracts to be awarded, for people to be able to run the health service in that way. Um, the reforms in the, this draft white paper that has been leaked um, throughout the last week has basically sought to overdo this and bring uh, many controls of parts of the health service back to ministers. Now, there's a lot we can talk about with this. So, Lucy, I guess, what's your initial reaction to the white paper? I guess, firstly, is this the right time to be talking about reform of the NHS? Because Matt Hancock certainly thinks it is. And secondly, do you think the reforms that are being mooted, are they the right reforms? Are they going and covering the right areas? So, firstly, in terms of is it the right time, I do sort of think that 
you could argue that it is a very good political move for the government, announcing that they are planning on reforming the NHS and reversing a lot of changes made under Cameron's government, which would bring them uh, a lot of political gain, whether it be from the public and some Conservative MPs. So I do think it is wise in that move for the party. Whether it be the right time to do it in the middle of a pandemic, I'd say you maybe could have held off a little bit longer. Uh, but then again, because ultimately these changes aren't going to be implemented overnight, they are not quick fixes. So maybe it could have waited a bit longer. However, some of the pressures that the NHS have been under, some of the issues, especially in relation to co uh, communication with social care and local authorities, that does need changing and improving and the sooner the better under these plans. So I do think it is timely in regards to the Conservative announcing it now especially with a lot of bad press about the uh, NHS being underprepared for the pandemic, both in terms of staff, resources, PPE, etc. I do think it is good in that way. But ultimately, at this current moment in time, we are still dealing with the imminent threat that the virus poses uh, to the wider community and the vaccine rollout. So arguably that maybe should be given, um, which I do think it should be given greater priority. And in regards to the second question, sort of about the changes themselves, I do think they are promising because uh, I do think a lot of the moves towards privatisation under Cameron are sort of maybe, uh, well, they are responsible for a lot of the issues we have seen as a result of the pandemic. So um, they have meant things are slower, the market is more invested in stuff, they have to go through companies, the government can't just do it and make the changes themselves. Um, and I do think it will be beneficial for, because obviously one of the big things uh, as a result of the changes is the increased communication with, uh, well, integration between healthcare and social care, which I do think is incredibly crucial for the ageing population that we currently have. And as a result of people that have uh, incredibly complex conditions, and we also don't know what long COVID is going to be like in the next sort of five, 10, 15 years. We don't know, we might need uh, greater care uh, on the not just on the health side but on the social side within local communities as a result of the pandemic so I do think that these changes will be positive I'm trying to be optimistic because I do think the privatization since Cameron hasn't done the NHS any favours uh having been at the wrong end of it myself so I I do think it is sort of a move in the right direction I just think the timing is a little bit questionable Privatisation within the NHS, that has been a big talking point for decades, really. Of course, the Lansley reforms were unpopular amongst many health workers because of that. But I guess you could say at the same time, one of the things that privatisation is supposed to encourage is competition and competition between services for NHS contracts that is supposed to make these services run more efficiently. And we've seen, of course, at the start of the pandemic, the government relied heavily upon the private sector to be able to source things like PPE, for example, and we've seen multiple successes, for example, in the productions of ventilators, which was heavily reliant upon the private sector. I guess there's one question that I suppose you could ask from that, which is it the fault of the services being run by private sector contractors themselves? Or is it the result of, for example, the lack of competitive tendering in many of these contracts, particularly during the pandemic, which has meant that contracts have just been given out often with sums of money attached to them, often to donors of the Tory party as well that, that don't necessarily have the proven credentials. Of course, we don't know if they would have won a competitive tendering process. I 
I do think uh, privatisation obviously does have its benefits, especially with what you make reference to the ventilators. We wouldn't be in the position that we are had the uh, swiftness of that, the development and the implementation of those ventilators without that. However, I do think that, and ultimately you could argue more competition to increase privatisation would uh, knock out these sort of contracts that have resulted in poor um, quality PPE, out-of-date PPE, et cetera, et cetera, being filled into the NHS during a time of crisis. However, ultimately, if you remove the privatisation there, you're not going to have that issue in the first place. So you are just going to have a centralised body uh, enabling for the purchasing of equipment. So specifically, arguably, let's boil it down to PPE again, maybe without the privatisation in place, we are going to enable uh, less issues to arise. I, I'm i not 100% sure yet. I think it's we need to see how the government is going to play it because I don't think they can roll out privatisation completely of the NHS at all. It's a Conservative government after all. I don't think that it can go completely. I don't think some of the backbenchers would allow it at all uh, and enable the legislation to pass through Parliament. I can't see it happen completely. Um, but I, I think it has its place in certain areas, but I've just seen um, personally too much struggle as a result of privatisation, especially in regards to social care. I've seen what that's done uh, to individuals. So I... I do think it has its place in certain areas so that innovation with the ventilators, but I do think there are certain areas that need to be left to government, need to be left to local authorities, because ultimately they know best how their local area works, how their local trust works, how their local social services work in order to best support their residents better. I mean, is it an issue perhaps not of privatisation, but of accountability within a centralised system? Um, the Institute of Economic Affairs released a fairly controversial report um, a week ago, and they were talking about their response to the pandemic and they cited three things they cited firstly that from their analysis the best performance in the pandemic have had lower levels of um, public spending in the health service they've spoken about these being even more open globalized economies in the uk and also the fact that they don't have fully nationalized health services like we do in the uk and the examples that the ia gave were countries like taiwan south korea mentioned hong kong as well and also singapore so i guess and a lot of people have talked about the impact of austerity within the last 10 years. But again, for according to the IEA here, this hollowing out of the state as it has been seen hasn't necessarily led to a situation where the UK was underprepared when other strong performers throughout the world have had lower levels of public spending, but done far better at handling the virus. So, I mean, what do you make of the IEA's conclusion there? Because again, following on from that, they say that there's very much, it's a variety of different health systems have been able to effectively handle the pandemic. So. I guess following off from that, what do you make of the IEA's claim there? And perhaps is it more a cultural issue, perhaps, within the NHS that could be culturals and structures, maybe more than money, for example? I do think there are questions over about management levels, but I think that ultimately the people who know the NHS better and the NHS best are those who are in the NHS, who are currently working in the NHS and are working incredibly hard and giving up a lot. So people like us are able to be healthy, are able to look after ourselves. So I I do, I recognise what they're saying. However, the you can't deny that austerity hasn't had an effect on the NHS. You can't deny that in any capacity. 
um, it has had an incredible effect and not in a positive light. Um, I do think that the, again, as I say, there are maybe issues with management, but I think that with an increase in funding and increase in support from the government, what you've got to appreciate is that there is nothing like the NHS anywhere else in the world. And I think we've got to acknowledge how lucky we are to have it. We have free healthcare. You can break your arm and go and get it fixed. You can have major surgery and have it done with no charge at all. And I think that that surely outweighs the any form of sort of privatisation argument where you put the to charges, etc. So I I think that it's valid. I'm just not very convinced by it. I can see, and I do also think an increase in spending would lead to an increase in sort of support for NHS staff. Because what you've got to think is these, especially during the pandemic, we have thousands of NHS staff that have been working incredibly hard. They work hard normally. They've worked far harder as a result of this pandemic. And I think that the government needs to show the support that, it says it gives every year, but I think it needs to show it a bit more. And I think sort of increasing public funds, I think that will reinstate a lot of people's faith. But I think it has to be it has to be administered effectively, which I think is where you've got to sort of look at the management structure and how funds will be distributed. But I think if both work together, because ultimately the staff who work for the NHS know where those funds need to be allocated. So I think if the government offers it and the NHS is able to implement it effectively into the areas that need it. I don't see why it can't work at all. Well, um, I believe at this point that you have to go, Lucy. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been fantastic to have you on. So, yeah, as you can see, a lot um, for us to really unpack with the NHS. I'm sure this will be a discussion that will continue to rage over the next years. And we'll be back. Seb will be joining us very shortly. We will be talking about um, the new um, reforms the government have made on cladding in the last week and whether this has come too little too late. But firstly, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stock bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Raw Breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your Raw. Now we're coming into the last segment of today's show and... As Lucy departs, we're pleased to say that Seb's internet has finally recovered and he is returning. Hello. Yes, no, I'm back now. And uh, yeah, in, in between times, we've uh, showered um, and, you know, had pancakes. So so all is uh, well in the world, Cam. You, you, can, you can tell this show is not recorded live. I mean, if this was done live in the studio, you would have not been able to do any of that. And I would have been tearing my exactly. hair out. I think it's a benefit. I, I, I think it is greater flexibility. But anyway... Um, Let's move on to one more story now, um, on to the cladding story. Now, obviously, since the Grenfell Tower fire three and a half years ago, the government have been under increased pressure with regards to the combustible cladding that was on the side of Grenfell Tower and removing it from many other buildings across the country. Um, obviously, we've had the Grenfell Tower inquiry. That's still ongoing at the moment. But the government have come under increased criticism 
for not providing support to those who are in these buildings where this cladding has to be removed. For many of these people, they're bearing the cost of removing the cladding and associated measures. For example, night marshals who are responsible for patrolling buildings and getting people out of them if necessary. But these can foot about, I think, about £30,000 a year per marshal, which is borne on the leaseholders who own these properties. Now, um, the government have announced a new scheme last week. Robert Jemrick announced £3.5 billion to cover the cost of cladding removal on all buildings over 18 metres, so about six storeys high. And for those in less than six storeys high, they'll be covering new loans, can come from the government to cover that with, and they have assured people that they will not have to pay back more than £50 per month in the event of having to take out these loans. The question is, is it too little too late? Seb, it's been three and a half years since the Grenfell Tower fire. It's been three and a half years since the issue of cladding Came, came onto the political agenda. And there have been calls for the last three and a half years for the government to do something about this and support those where the cladding has to be taken off because it's accepted you can't keep the cladding on these buildings. So I guess, is it too little and is it too late? I mean, on both points, yes, absolutely. Um, and what was really sad is that these people couldn't sell these properties, right? Because they couldn't afford to get rid of the cladding um and you know cladding is obviously known now it's completely unsafe and nobody wants to touch them on the barge pole so they were completely trapped in unsafe property and i think it's something that the parties are united on now in that we need to strip our buildings of cladding um and that every effort should be made toward that end but even now when they finally got their act together they're still making sure uh, you know arguing that claimants in sharp in um tenants in some way should have to foot the bill as you said up to 50 pounds a month and i think what you have to remember is that sometimes the people these properties you know the tenants paying for them don't have high high incomes these are um low rent properties right so 50 pounds a month uh could is, is a lot potentially out of somebody's disposable budget at the end of every month and it's not for something um that's actually their fault this is the mistake of uh, property developers. Yes, cladding may have been allowed at the time, clearly since it has been proven not to be safe and is subsequently not allowed. Therefore, it should be the private landlords who foot the bill uh, for entirely uh, in conjunction with the government to cover the cost of removal of cladding, not unsuspecting, completely innocent and now totally vulnerable tenants who often don't have that much disposable income, certainly not to spend on something which isn't their fault, isn't their doing. Um, and so those are my thoughts on the matter. Well, I think it's certainly interesting. I think, as you said, there is an increasing cross-party consensus on this matter now that tenants who have been in this situation bought properties who, under the regulations at the time, said they were totally safe. But now we've had a review since Grenfell Tower fire, and we've obviously had a review into the cladding. Now these properties are unsafe, and they're very much bearing the cost of it. But one thing that certainly struck me, and I want to get your opinion on this, the 18 metres, so the figure where you basically get it fully supported by the government above 18 metres, so six storeys, or below 18 metres, which is where um, you have to take out all the government issue the loans instead of fully giving the money. Um, I'm going to give you the example of um, the Cube student accommodation in Bolton, which in November 2019 um, saw a massive inferno break out. Now, luckily, no students were harmed. Now, this was a six story um, tall building, but I can remember the vividly the images of the entire building going up and the cladding on the side of that building um, just literally going up like a tinderbox in seconds. Now, under the government scheme, this doesn't qualify 
as part of the three and a half, or this wouldn't qualify as part of that three and a half billion pounds to remove cladding from the buildings. Instead, those within the buildings, I presume if in the case of that, maybe the tent, the students who are renting in that building, or perhaps the owners of those properties would be required to take that money out. Um, what do you make of that? Do you think that 18 metres is too arbitrary? Yeah, of course it's arbitrary. Cladding should be replaced in all of its uh, in all of the ways it manifests. Uh, frankly, um, the the notion that just because it's below a certain level doesn't mean that people are less vulnerable. Of course, you know there's less people in it presumably because it's not tall, right? Um, and of course, um, you know it's not as because Grenfell was incredibly symbolic, being the tall high-rise tower that it was. It seems to be almost that the government's only willing to cover buildings that it deems almost spectacle-like uh, in the sense that they're only willing to care about tall towers. It doesn't matter if you're in a short tower and you die, um, right? It is absolutely, as you said, encapsulated in a word, arbitrary and totally dangerous, I might add. Um, and I think that needs changing. Well, I think certainly one of the things that has come from this is the changes to building regulations. And um, there's a particular row emerging over the fire safety bill at the moment where a lot of backbench conservative MPs have said that they will rebel against the government on the fire safety bill if they don't extend this provision on cladding further. I, I guess to go from that, do you think the government have, with this move, finally got on top of the issue? Or do you think there's still more that they can do? I mean, that that's in a way remains a subject of speculation in the sense that we're waiting still somehow on the outcome of the Grenfell inquiry. And I don't doubt that when the conclusions of that report and of that inquiry are finally published, that uh, further revelations will unravel that the government needs to address. Um, so I don't think we've seen the end of the government measures and I don't know if we can currently say whether the government has done enough. Certainly, it's moving in the right direction where previously it wasn't. But as we've discussed, it's too little, too late, Cap. And just very, very quickly, obviously, building regulation has come under increased scrutiny because of this. And we're expecting it to be tightened. But, I mean, is there an argument just very, very quickly that taxpayers as a whole should be bearing the cost of a general change in building regulations that has come as a result of this? And so the cladding could be borne by the taxpayer? It's a good question. Um, no, um, I do not think uh, the burden should fall on everyday taxpayers. Um, I think the, ta uh, the burden should fall on the government because the fact that cladding was ever allowed on buildings is a failure of government regulation in the first place. To be fair, you can't even blame private landlords. I know that's somewhat contradictory to what I initially said, because they were only acting within the regulations that permitted the use of cladding. The fact that cladding was actually allowed in the first place is the government's doing. So where possible, it should be uh, covered uh, by the government. And uh, obviously, the government doesn't have its own money, it only has taxpayers' money. Um, but where it can, it should not be borne by the taxpayers. I'm sure they can uh, do some quantitative easing or something fancy uh, to avoid burdening the taxpayer and covering the cost. Well, that is all we have time for today. Seb, thanks very much for coming on the show no today. Worries. And it's thanks as well. No, it's been a pleasure to have you on. As thanks as well um, to Lucy for coming on. It's been fantastic to have your company for the last two hours. We hope you'll join us again Wednesday next week at 3 p.m. Across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station.